Uh, good morning. Uh, you guys are responsive. That's cool. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, um, that's good. We're going to be all over it. Can't really give you a text this morning to point to. We are, I guess, starting a new series this morning. And not I guess, we are starting a new series this morning. It's called This is God's Church. And this is a, a statement that we have kind of um, used as an anchoring point for us to always remember that this is God's church. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's, it's not a small group of people. It's, it's his, ultimately. And the way we arrived at, at this time doing this series, let me just kind of backtrack. In the first five months of the year, we were talking about discipleship and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and his teaching. And as we moved through that, it led us into a series on scripture, and then it led us into a series on prayer. And then coming out of that series on prayer, which was really like inward transformative prayer, um, we began to transition into conversation around corporate prayer that was found in Second Chronicles chapter 6, the longest extended prayer in the scriptures, and it was Solomon praying the dedication of the temple. And in the first week, we saw Solomon rest his entire prayer on a doctrinal statement that there is no one like our God. And in that, we uh, came out with the conclusion that humility precipitates movement. In week two of that, then, we asked the question, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? And we saw a building up of five different ways that God does indeed dwell with man on earth. And the one that we live in right now is step number four, which is through the Holy Spirit in you and me and the Holy Spirit then in us collectively as the church. All of that working together to hopefully usher in someday um, Step five, which is when Jesus comes and builds his kingdom here on earth, right? And so we're in, we're in level four of that. Now, within that, we also saw that holiness precipitates movement, that the reason God came to dwell with man on earth um, was to restore the lost holiness in humanity. Uh, and so now that Jesus came and gave us his holiness, we can now dwell with God and the Holy Spirit can come inside. Now, after this part of Solomon's prayer, we arrive at verse 18, uh, where he asks the question, will man dwell, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? He asks that question, and then immediately after that, he goes in to say the question, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, let alone, let alone this house that I have built. And there's this terminology that then begins to work its way through the scriptures on the house of the Lord. And so this morning, as you see the word house, an interchangeable word would be church uh, for it. And that's the name of the series. But we're going to use the word house a lot because it's the word that's particularly used in the text. And so this question that, that Solomon is asking is, is God, can you be contained? Can you be contained? Can this house that I'm building you be contained or contain you? And then Isaiah chapter 66 builds on it. And it says this, it says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? This is God asking the question out, what type of house will you build for me? Now in this, we of course submit to the idea found in Psalms that unless God build the house, it be built in vain. We know, of course, that the house is God's house. It's not our house. But then this is the, um, the coming together of how heaven and earth work together. That although it is God's church, he looks at us and he 
lets us be a part of the building of his house or his church. Now, we build it under his headship and his authority. But the question is, what kind of house will be built? Said more clearly, what kind of church will be built? And so this summer, what we're going to do is we're going to explore that question. We're going to take a a summer as a church to understand what the house that God came to build looks like. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to point out today five anti-answers, five negative answers to the question, what kind of house will we build? And we're going to start with the negative, and it is not to point out specific organizations, churches, um, entities, or anything like that. It is all simply to serve what we want to see happen here and to be as reminders for us. And I believe I'll point out in scripture how all of these come to be. And we're going to point out those five, seeing that the opposite then of each of those is the positive on what kind of house. And then ultimately we will see that all of those five houses are fulfilled in the person of Jesus because it's his house and he builds his house. So that's where we're headed. Why are we headed there? Why? Well, we all know that Jesus is the hope of the world that the gospel is the solution to the world's problems and that the gospel must go out. But what we know then is that God's strategy for getting the gospel out, or as we've said it here before, God's strategy for redemption is through his church. And so all the good that needs to happen in the world, all of the salvation that needs to occur, all of the building of the kingdom of God, moving out into culture, moving out into the world is to occur occur through his church. The church is God's strategy for redemption. That's why this is important. And so this morning, I'll, I'll point out to you these five houses. Each house will have a name. And then each house will have two doorways or two paths on how we could, if we're not careful, find ourselves in that house. Some of this may seem familiar to those of you who have grown up in church for a long time. And when I say familiar, maybe you'll identify and you'll go, ha, maybe that's what happened there. Or maybe that's what happened over here. And again, this is not to put anyone down. It is to serve as a a warning sign for us. Let's start with house number one. House number one is the powerless house. The powerless house. And in the powerless house, we can actually contain God because we don't really know him. Now, here's how the powerless house comes about. We'll see in Matthew chapter 16. And by the way, I'm going to move through a lot and quickly this morning, but I'm going to revisit every idea that I present this morning um, later on this summer. In Matthew chapter 16, we see this important text. It's Jesus speaking. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the phrase right there, on this rock, I will build my church, has turned out to be one of the most controversial phrases in like the last 2,000 years of history, right? Because the question is, well, is he talking about Peter, or is he talking about the statement that Peter has just made? It is our belief that he's talking about the statement and that the rock that the church is to be built upon is the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that the foundation of the church and the movement that is going to happen is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The first pathway or doorway into becoming a powerless house is a weak foundation, a weak foundation. And a weak foundation then is any foundation of doctrine. By the way, this story precipitate, or no, comes right after a story um, where Jesus was warning of bad doctrine. We'll talk about that next week, that the, the step one of the church is to be a powerful foundation. And a powerless church or a church that lacks power will have a weak foundation, a weak foundation built on poor doctrine. Poor doctrine being anything other than Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Here it would indicate that the doctrine is going to start with our proper understanding of Jesus, but that extends then to all proper understanding of doctrine as laid out in the scriptures. And that any variation of essential core doctrine in the scriptures and any variation about who Jesus is will lead to a poor foundation and a powerless church. I was listening to uh, a preacher from the 50s. He was talking about um, what he was perceiving as a move away from good doctrine in the church as a whole in the 50s. And he was using, I think, some other words to help describe this type of church. We're calling it the powerless church. Another word you could use is a dead church. You can feel it when you walk in. A church where there's no life brimming over. And oftentimes when you look and you try to get underneath and you say, what caused the deadness? Typically, it is a movement away from proper understanding of Jesus and proper doctrine. In the 50s, this guy made this quip. Again, the 1950s, he made this quip. He said, you never hear of revival in the Unitarian church. You don't drive by the Unitarian church and go, man, it seems like there's a lot of life flowing out of that parking lot. Why? Because the Holy Spirit elevates Jesus. And when we take Jesus then out of the church, the Holy Spirit can't be present. And so power in the church starts with proper doctrine around Jesus. Said another way, there can be a Christianity that ceases to include Christ. And this is not unfamiliar in our modern times. That as you begin to study doctrines that exist in the churches, in churches, and in, in even denominations now, and you see, where has Jesus gone? Where has the full understanding of Jesus gone? Where is, where is Christ fully 
God and fully man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, wasn't just an example of love, but was the substitutionary atonement on the cross and actually literally physically rose from the grave, Jesus. Like, where's that Jesus? And maybe in a room like this, we look and we go, come on, no, this is common. Like, of course, of course, everyone still holds on to Jesus. No, they don't. No, they don't. And the easiest way for the church decline to settle in is to eliminate Jesus from his proper place. Now, the second element of the the powerless church is found in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, this is one of my favorite uh, stories to preach on, and so I get to preach on it in a couple weeks. This will be fun. Mark chapter 9, verse 28 to 29, says this. And when he had entered the house, you can see the word house emerge a lot. It's, it's amazing how this happens. But let's just change it for a second. And when he had entered the church, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? It's referring to a demon that they were unable to cast out. They didn't have enough power to cast it out. And he, Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What's happening here is that the disciples had a little bit of power, but they didn't have enough power. They had, they, had, they had an ability to do some things, but not an ability to do everything that God wanted them to do. And Jesus goes and says, oh, if you want to see movement in this type of way, it is going to require a greater focus on prayer and fasting. In other words, he says, you're going to have to care a little bit more. You're going to have to want it a little bit more. You're going to have to dive in a little bit deeper, or there's not going to be any movement here. The the picture then of the the powerless church uh, and some warning signs that, 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 that we could be heading there ever are these. Weak doctrine. Weak doctrine. Scared of conflict or lacking courage. Making excuses for the Bible or God. On the other hand, You can sense it when you're there because there's no energy to serve or to give or to worship. There's no fervor in prayer or sacrifice. There's no heightened awareness for the need of spiritual movement and revival. That the people of that particular body don't carry within them this urgent need and desire to see Jesus move, to look out at the world and say, no, this can't be it. We can't surrender ground to the enemy. There's got to be something that is moving. And God, you got to do something. And we're not going to give up the position of the church. And in the dead church, people are more concerned about the things of the world. People have energy for for building every other thing, but not in pouring that into what God loves most, his church. These are signs of the powerless church. But the powerful church has a strong foundation with Christ as the cornerstone and has all the power that it needs through prayer and focus and fasting to finish the work that it is called to accomplish. In the powerful church, people are excited and equipped and ready to do what God would have them to do. This is the powerful church. And the powerless church eventually grows empty 
powerless church eventually shuts down. And the powerless church, even in its waning years, sees very little movement. But the powerful church is the one that Jesus was talking about here. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. It will always be on the move. That's number one. Number two, what I'm going to call the natural house. The natural house or the natural church. I want to read a passage in Judges chapter 6 because I I think it helps set up the um, environment for this particular church. Let me just read this passage. Judges 6, 13 through 15. And Gideon said to him, him is, by the way, the angel of the Lord, who we believe to be Jesus through a Christophany. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The natural house, the natural house, is, uh, and what's going on in this story is Israel has basically surrendered its God-given right to the promised land. It's surrendered the power that it has by serving the one and only true God, and it has surrendered that to the cultural dominance of the day. In the, in the natural house, the church looks and says, well, at this point, we probably need to be subservient to culture because culture seems to be winning. Culture seems to have more power and culture has, seems to have more strength and, uh, and the messaging of culture seems to be triumphing over the message of the church. And so uh, what the Israelites were doing in that day is they were just kind of doing the best they could and then they knew that culture or Midian would come in and would destroy them and take everything and then we would just kind of slowly start over and we would champion little wins. And God shows up into, Midian, uh, into that situation and he looks at Gideon and he goes, what are you guys doing? Why have you given up your God-given right to this land? Why have you forgotten about my power? And Gideon actually asked the question, he goes, where did all the power go, God? And like the powerless church then oftentimes can lead into the natural church. And the natural church actually begins to contain the uncontainable God because it forgets about his supernatural power. And in the cultural church, the the cultural house, other words, by the way, that we use to describe this sometimes, or we say, well, well, it's just the practical way to do things. It's the realistic way to do things. In the cultural, or I'm sorry, in the natural house, we stop believing in the uncontainable God and his ability to do anything. In the natural house, we diminish the supernatural, or in particular, the Holy Spirit, and fall dangerously close to the sin of quenching the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes in the natural house, people are attracted to it because it's cool. We fall in love with the methods or the organization rather than Jesus. 
Oftentimes in the natural church, it is hard to distinguish between the church and the world because the natural church just kind of wants to fit in with the world. And oftentimes in the natural church, the church gets more concerned about questions like, are we good citizens? Are we being good neighbors? Are we a good social organization rather than are we the champions of the gospel? Let me tell you about a couple of guys who really weren't that great of citizens. John, James, Peter, Paul. They weren't um, against the government of their day, but when it came to, are we going to stand for Jesus or bow to the authorities, they said, we'll stand for Jesus all day. Do what you want with us. It was said of them that they turned the world upside down, that when they, the church, when the, when the supernatural church came into the city of Ephesus, the entire economy of Ephesus was actually transformed. Their biggest moneymaker was the idols that they made. And the guys got together and they said, hold on, if we don't stop these guys, no one's going to buy our idols anymore. They weren't subservient to culture. They came in and they imploded culture. And the, the, the natural church becomes hard to distinguish between the church and the world. Oftentimes it can reflect a country club more than a church. And the supernatural has ceased to exist. But the supernatural house is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the supernatural church sees a God who can use what the world would say is the unusable, can do what the world would say is impossible. By the way, the two doorways into the natural house oftentimes are the circumstances. Like, this is just kind of the way it is right now. Or me, like people. People would say, like Gideon said, oh, you couldn't use me. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. So this is the natural house. We've got the powerless house and then the natural house. It's number two. House number three. House number three is what I'm going to call the historical house. And the historical house contains God by thinking that God only has one playbook. Remember when people used to watch football? That was a thing. And you'd be watching a game. Typically, it would be a game where Jim Harbaugh was coaching. And you'd be watching the game and you'd go, why do you keep running these plays? Like they never work. Change it up. Change it up. Change it. Some of you would get so frustrated, you'd leave. Right, or turn off the TV. The historical church gets stuck. And it gets stuck because it isn't properly uh, able to understand how God is choosing to move right now. And oftentimes the historical church can't get past how God has moved in the past, thinking that it's God's only path to movement. Let me give you a couple of verses that back this idea up. Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says these words. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Let me give another verse that helps move this idea. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 16 through 19. 
Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. In other words, he's like, this is tired. This isn't working. Doesn't matter how many you bring. Doesn't matter how many times you keep playing it. It's not working. And then he says this, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He's saying, church, can't you see I'm doing something new? Can't you see how I want to bring in my next movement? Don't you perceive it? Don't you have eyes to see it? He says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. See, in the historical church, We can't differentiate between the difference of eternal principles and momentary methods. We we can't see the difference. See, what I'm not saying is that you need to change eternal principles. Eternal principles are always eternal principles. And you go back to, to church number one or house number one. The church will never have power unless it's built on those eternal principles. But the methods have changed over the years. Let's just have an honest conversation. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, people would say, God could never move through rock music and Mountain Dew in a movie-style church. He grabbed my heart that way. He sure did. Got me going. 40 years, 50 years before that, people would say, God could never move through charismatic Catholics. Are you kidding me? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Oh, God can move however he wants to move. And we've got to be discerning enough to see how is he moving right now. And we have to be humble enough to go, man, these methods, we'll throw them out in a second if they're no longer working. They don't matter. It's not about the methods. Man, what if in 20 years nobody wants to go to a church with drums? I mean, Matthew will be out of a job, but he's a tough kid. He'll figure it out. Then we'll get rid of the drums. We got to be able to see the difference. Warning signs of this are when you hear statements like, no, this is, this is how God does it. Or it's opposite. Well, I've never seen that before. When we think our way of doing things is the only way to always and forever do things. Sometimes you can see within the historical church because you can hear phrases like this. Well, that's not real church. Or, yeah, but anyone could do it if they were willing to compromise. And what they say when they say anyone can do it if they were willing to compromise, what they're missing in that moment is they are not seeing that the compromise is not about eternal principles. It's about the momentary methods. And I think God would have us compromise on momentary methods all of the time if it leads to salvation and how he's doing things. But never on eternal principles. We think compromise means methods, not doctrines. 
or doctrines, not methods. And oftentimes in the historical church, you couldn't see a move of God if it hit you in the face. Or in the historical church, you couldn't see a move of God if it cleared out your pews of all of the good people. Because the ones who are still alive are like, oh, wait. God, where are you moving right now? And the key of this is to see how God is choosing to move right now. And this, no human is smart enough to discern this. These things are only discerned through the Holy Spirit. Only discerned through the Holy Spirit. Which is why God moves through a humble and contrite heart. And not just of a one person, but a body that says, God, okay, we're foolish. <laughs> like, but, we're, but, but we'll try and be humble and contrite, God, and you just tell us what you're doing right now, please. That's house number three. House number four, called the corrupt house. The corrupt house. Let me give you a couple of verses just to set this one up. Second Timothy chapter two. This will be a fun one to preach in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Who knows how quick this series will go. Second Timothy chapter two, 20 through 21. Now in a great house, love it, now in a great church, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What's it saying? It's saying holiness is tied to usefulness. Holiness is tied to usefulness. And in the corrupt house, we actually contain the uncontainable God by choosing sin over holiness. The entire doctrine of sin is that it destroys and delays and leads to death. Always. And in a, what, what Paul is teaching Timothy here is cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. And then let God move through you. Now, I'm not suggesting here because the entirety of the Bible doesn't suggest that, um, that God can't use imperfect people. Of course he can. Who's he looking for? Humble and contrite people. And what does the humble and contrite person do? When the Holy Spirit hits, confesses, and repents. The problem most of the time in scripture, is not if somebody sins, it's if they're unwilling to repent, change, and move forward differently. You know how many times David fell down? You know how many times he got back up? You could even, and I'll preach on this, you could even look at the guy in 1 Corinthians that got expelled from the church and go, well, what about him? Yeah, you know what that sin was? Public and unrepentant. That's why it was a problem. That's why it was a problem, because it was unrepentant. He refused to change. In the corrupt house, you can elevate talent over character, happiness over holiness. They don't have to be interchangeable, by the way. You can be afraid of tough subjects and shift to culture and bow to it. And the church that is supposed to be set apart and holy can just look like the rest of the world. It can refuse to call people to repentance. It can lack the courage to exercise church accountability. And it can preach an incomplete gospel. So what's the key in this one? 
Do you remember that by the grace of God, we are called to be holy as Christ is holy? To be close enough to the Holy Spirit that every time sin emerges in our heart, we drop to our knees, repent, confess, and allow him to change us. And that we create a culture of confession. See, in some of the other houses, sin is dirty, it's messy. And we can create a culture where confession leads to crucifying the person and concealment leads to promotion. And this is not the church that Jesus came to plant. Now, the church that Jesus came to plant, uh, I said, if I ever write a book someday, which is not going to happen, but it's fun to think about, the title would be, The Church Would Have Fired King David. It would have fired him. He led a pretty good kingdom. Even after. And so somehow there's got to be a way to figure that out. But in saying that, sin is destructive and deadly. And it has to be dealt with. But ultimately, we have to remember that Jesus dealt with it on the cross. He was crucified, so we don't have to crucify one another. Number five, the religious house. The religious house. In the religious house, we can contain God by elevating man-made methods and traditions over the spirit. I might ruffle some feathers here, but this is my favorite one. People will say things like, I can't believe they do communion like that. And I'll say, how do you do communion? And they'll say, the right way. So please explain that to me. Great. You know that that tradition of doing communion is 200 years old? Do you know that communion is 2,000 years old? Do you know that basically the way every single church does communion is a distortion of the way that we originally did communion? Unless you take communion around a table and have a full meal with it, <laughs> you're probably not doing it the way they did in the Bible. What's the point? The point is man-made traditions can never carry more weight than Scripture. Phrases like, but we've always done it like that. In the religious house also then, and this is who Jesus reserves his harshest words for, perceived holiness often matters more than actual holiness. Can I say that again? Perceived holiness can actually matter more than actual holiness. Sometimes in the religious house, you can hear phrases like, can you believe he has holes in his jeans? Wore these intentionally. Or their worship leader has tattoos. In the religious house, the phrase, everyone is invited to experience redemption, might be spoken, but it would never be felt. Because ultimately, in the religious house, Jesus teaches us, the thing has left the religious house is love. Love has left the religious house. And the religious house has forgotten the gospel. It's forgotten that everyone's invited to experience redemption because we all need it, every one of us. 
because we all need the grace of God to pour out into our dead hearts and to bring us alive. And then those of you who have been walking this journey for a while know that you need it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And you just gotta keep coming back to the gospel. And on the opposite of each of these houses is the church that I believe that Jesus came to build. The house that he wants us under his headship to build. Not a powerless house, but a powerful house. A house of people that see the need for revival. A house of people that look and say, yeah, maybe I have been caught up in caring way too much about the things of the world and my senses have been um, um, lessened to the, the great spiritual need of our day. And, uh, and, and then instead, the uh, um, um, people then begin to, to, to repent and to turn from, from the love of the world and say, God, I want to be a part of your powerful church. And the, the church then um, um, centers back around and, and, and gets rid of all of the distracting conversation, gets rid of all of the conversations about, well, how can we just be better citizens or better people or do a little bit better here and say, hold on, let's just push that all aside for a second, okay, and let's go back to the beginning and make sure we all have a solid foundation of what it is that we believe and build something off of that doctrine. Because from that doctrine, then we can stand strong. And then we can commit ourselves to prayer and fasting because all of a sudden our hearts desire that more than golf and Netflix. I was just speaking to myself there. And the church begins to go, I don't want to just be a part of something natural. I don't want to celebrate 3% growth and a new giver. Sure, it's good, great, but, but I want to see the supernatural. Like, like some point, God, before I go, I want to see heaven break out. Like all of the prayers that we've individually been praying for this salvation or that salvation. And sometimes we get excited because we're, we, we see these little wins and we're like, oh, did you hear that that famous person is now a Christian? Oh my goodness. I want all of them to be Christians. I want a heaven to break out. That in this, in this church that he came to plant, the, the, we, we look and we say, God, we honor all that you have done in the past. And we ask for your Holy Spirit discernment to see what you want to do right now. Because we crave the new thing. And whatever it is that you want to do. And so, Father, root us. Root out of us all corruption. We will cleanse ourselves. We will lay down both the sin and the idol of the heart. We will prepare ourselves in heart for what you want to do. And make us a gospel house, not a religious one. Where the love of God continues to, to build and to grow.
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.